Gospel of John, chapter 1. We continue our study in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to pick it up tonight in verse 14 of John, chapter 1. And John, again, has such a unique perspective on Christ. He was a disciple that leaned his head on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. He was a disciple that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to at the cross. In fact, he was the only disciple that was at the cross. He had a very unique relationship with with Jesus. And he wrote this gospel way after the other three gospels. Uh, I think part of the reason why God did that was to fill in some of the the blanks, if you will, that the other Gospels did not. Remember, 90% of the Gospel of John is unique to John. It is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And John opens up this great book by introducing us to the Word of God. And he wants us to stop and reflect and ponder on the Word of God. In fact, another thing we've shared these first couple of weeks, is that I believe out of all the books of the Bible, the Gospel of John needs to be the most reflective. It needs to be the one book that we really slow down on because John has so many profound things to say that we will miss how profound they are if we rush through it. John wants us to stop and reflect and ponder and consider these things very carefully. And so he's talked to us about the wonder of the Word of God, that in Him is light and life. He hasn't named the Word of God yet, but he certainly introduced us to the Word. And he's told us that the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word has been here from eternity past, all through eternity. The Word was in the world, and the world that was created by Him did not recognize Him. And now he's going to tell us, beginning in verse 14, how the Word came into the world. And he's going to actually introduce us to the Word and give the Word a name tonight. So notice in verse 14, he says, Now the Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh. This wonder of a Word. The Word that expresses the very mind and will of God. The personification of God, if you will. The perfect expression of God became human. Human. And There's no doubt that up to this point, John has certainly, in a very clear way, expressed the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is fully God, 100% God. But now... Now he's going to share with us another truth of equal importance. And that is that Jesus Christ is also 100% human. And, And again, John wants us to stop there for a moment and realize what is taking place. I I mean, down through history, history, even people who believed in a God might believe that that God even cared enough to maybe every once in a while come and do a quick appearance. But never to actually assume a human body. In fact, down through history, there's even been false teaching that has taught that anything material is evil. 
Which is why down through history, people have rejected the humanity of Jesus Christ because they say that God can't exist in material, in humanity. That's evil. And, and so they reject the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we know many places why Jesus Christ took on humanity and why he did that. And that's not what this is about. But, but what I want us to see tonight is that the incarnation, the God becoming man, is not just a truth to be wondered at. It is actually an example for us to follow. The reason I say that is you don't have to turn there, if I can find it real quick. I want to read this passage to you out of the book of Philippians, where Paul writes to Christians, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When the Bible teaches us that the Word became flesh, that, that is not just something to wonder and be in awe about. Again, it is an example for us to follow. If God left the glories of heaven and was willing to take on humanity in order to properly and most clearly and most perfectly express to man what God is and who God is, and he humbled himself to do it, then should not we be willing to, throughout our lives, humble ourselves and be willing to empty ourselves, if you will, just like Jesus did. In fact, I would submit to all of us as Christians that one of the greatest ways we can make inroads and build bridges and make an impact and an impression, especially on those who don't know God in a personal way, is going to be through our humility. Going to be through our willingness to empty ourselves of ourselves, just like Jesus did. And I've used this illustration in the past, but I want to bring it up again because it, for me, it's just some way that I can begin again to, to ponder and to reflect and to contemplate just what Jesus did on a kind of scale, at least, that I can begin to wrap my mind around. If you and I as human beings were to look at a little ant crawling around, we would go, wow. What an inferior creature to us. And yet, if for a second we would have any kind of love for that creature enough to, say, be willing to leave this and become an ant, do you realize that the depth of humility that Jesus took was far greater and far deeper for God to become a man than for a man to become an ant. 
And so when the Bible says the Word became flesh, we really have nothing to compare to because we could pick out whatever we think is the lowest of God's creations compared to us. And, and we could say, okay, what would it be like for me, a human being, to take upon that form for any amount of time? And to think that the God of all glory and all creation, as we've already learned, nothing was created that He did not create. And to think that He limited Himself in order to express to us who God is, is just, all we can do is say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to become flesh, willing to take upon humanity. Think, think about this for a moment. We're not going to get very far, but that's okay. <laughs> the people that God created, that Jesus created, were the people that nailed him to the cross. The tree that God created was the tree that he hung on. The nails that were forged in the fires and in the earth Jesus created all that and yet allowed all of that to come back on Himself. The Word became flesh. And then, John says, and He dwelt among us. Literally in the Greek, it was He pitched His tent. It would be the same concept as the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That for the Old Testament people, that God, in a sense, was with them in the tabernacle. And everywhere they went, they would put up the tabernacle, and that represented God's presence with His people there. And what John is simply saying is God did the same thing in the New Testament. He literally tabernacled or pitched His tent. And it would be one thing for God, literally, even like some other religions teach, that their gods maybe every once in a while appeared very brief, briefly and then went back to the comforts of whatever they were from. But this Jesus, this God... He came and He literally pitched His tent and stayed here for a long time. I mean, maybe for us, 30-some years would not be long, and obviously that would be a short young life as far as a, a scale goes. But when you think about that this is the Jesus that has been adored and worshipped by the angels ever since they were created, has lived in glory, has lived in perfect sinless condition, has been in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, and, and has been able to exhibit all of His godly perfection and attributes and just let His glory go, now for 30-some years was willing to, in a sense, hide that in a body. It's just beyond our thinking to dwell among us. And John says in verse 14, but I want you to know, we saw His glory. Not only is He going to talk about, as He already has, John the Baptist being a witness and testifying to the truth of who Jesus is, but now John the Apostle, the one who wrote this Gospel, says, I want you to know, I beheld His glory. 
I learned by looking. The word in the Greek means to carefully study. It wasn't just, I glanced, oh, I looked. No, it was like, I learned something by looking at the very glory of God. And I believe he's talking about the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And obviously, Elijah and Moses appeared there with him. And let's also remember something, though, about that transfiguration. That when Jesus sort of gave his disciples a glimpse of his glory, that that's exactly what it was. It was a glimpse. That he he didn't fully reveal his glory or else they would have probably just disintegrated. And even that glimpse, John says, wow. Man, if you saw what I saw, and I'm telling you, he's the real deal. He's the word. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He has glory. And the word glory here just simply also refers to the absolute perfections, the majesty, the magnificence of God. Now today you may go, well, God's not giving me a visible, you know, presentation of his glory. Yes, he does. You know where you find the glory of God today? It's what the Bible says. The Bible says when we get into the word of God and we look at it, it's like a mirror. And we are changed from one level of glory to another level of glory By the word of God and the spirit of God taking the word of God. And we begin to understand God's glory today. Not through necessarily seeing glimpses of his glory that he literally shows to us like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we do behold his glory through his word. And we begin to get a concept of who the word of God really is. We can behold the glory of God if we get into the word of God. And John says, the glory of the one and only. And I love the Net Bible's translation there because in some older translations it would use the term only begotten. And many cults and false religions would take that and say, see, only begotten. That that means that Jesus somehow was less than God because he was begotten. As if they translated and interpreted the word as if somehow Jesus had a beginning. But that's not at all what the Greek language means. It means the only one of its kind. That's what the word means. The only one of its kind. And so John is saying... You've got to understand that the word, there's no one else like the word. That, that Jesus is unique and has no, no one else like Jesus. And there never will be. That there's never going to be one who is 100% God and 100% human. Never. Only Jesus. And so again, John here is really trying to witness and testify to the wonder of the word. And then he says, you know what else was so great about Jesus? Yes, we beheld visibly his glory, but but you know what really impacted us? This Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's what impacted John. The fact that this God was full of grace and truth. 
Let me remind us all tonight what this means. The word grace means God's loving kindness, favor, and goodwill. And John says Jesus was full of that. He was full of loving kindness, full of favor, full of goodwill towards us. Towards everyone. Because that's His nature. He is complete in grace. He lacks nothing in grace. And then John says he also lacks nothing as far as truth goes. And this word speaks about the integrity of Jesus Christ. That he is personally excellent, if you will. That he is free from pretense. He is free from deceit. He is free from falsehood. So when Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus is saying, you can trust me. I'm I'm not trying to deceive you in any way. There's no bit of falsehood in me. I'm not trying to sell you a bit of goods. Everything I say, it's right out there. It is truth. And I cannot lie. And John says he's full of truth. He can't lie. He's God. Everything he ever did was absolute integrity. And then John says, he came from the Father. Because we need to be reminded that when Jesus came, it wasn't just out of his love for us. But the Father loved us too. And the Father sent his Son into the world. And obviously the Holy Spirit being in perfect union with other members of the Godhead, was right there with them. They were all in concert, if you will, with the plan that they had come up with. Now, in verse 15, John the Apostle now is going to talk about John the Baptist again. And he says, John testified about him. And remember I talked about the importance of us being willing to witness and testify? I challenged all of us and encouraged us to write out our testimony, if we've never done that, our personal testimony. And I said it really is just needs to be brief, one page, don't go long. Three elements. What was your life briefly like before? And that's the key word, before you came to Christ. The second key word, how? How did you come to Christ? And then the third, what's your life been like after? Key word, after. It follows the biblical model of sharing our testimony. And I I encourage you all to have faith in your personal testimony and the power of your personal testimony. Because as you share your personal testimony, you never will know how God can use how He changed your life and is changing your life to impact and influence others to be willing to be changed as well. John testified about him and shouted out, stood up and stood out and said, this one was the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. Now, the reason I think part of the reason why John the Baptist said that is everybody knew Jesus was younger in age than John the Baptist. Mary didn't have Jesus chronologically in time until after John the Baptist was born. And especially in that culture, that culture gave great 
credence and, and, and great uh, uh, attention to anyone who was older. Uh, they, they, you know, had, you know, the respect and all of that. And so John just wants to put it out there. Look, I may be a few months older than Jesus, but here's what you got to understand. Jesus is always going to be greater than me, even though he's younger than me, because he actually existed before me. And John, in no uncertain terms, wants people to, to know that who he's pointing to and who he's witnessing about, even though he was physically born in Bethlehem, he is the word of God who's always existed. By the way, the word greater here means to be in front of. And it's a great reminder to us as Christians that Jesus Christ should always be in front of us. <laughs> or maybe you say it this way, we should always be following Jesus. If he is who the word of God says he is, if he is the Lord, the creator, the word of God, then should he not be out in front before us leading the way? And if we truly believe that he is who the Bible teaches he is, why would we not want him out there leading the way? Why would we ever want to take the lead in our own lives and call our, the shots and, and, and you know say, God, I've got this. If Jesus says, I'm willing to be your shepherd... I'm willing to lead you. We've talked about last week that God's eyes literally dart around the earth just wanting to help and support people if they would just turn to Him and rely on Him. And so John is just again re-emphasizing that. And then I love this. This is something we need to contemplate as well. John says to all of us, not just to himself, we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. We're going to be here for a few minutes. First of all, it's important to look at the word received. Have we truly received what God wants to give us? Remember last week I talked about the fact that the word received could be illustrated this way. I could have a serious illness. I could go to a doctor. I could believe that the doctor knows what he's talking about. I could even believe whatever the diagnosis is that the doctor has given. And I could even believe whatever medicine he's prescribed is going to help me. But it's only if I'm willing to receive it and take the medicine, is it going to change anything? And there's many people today who they may even up here they might know Jesus, they might even believe Jesus, but until they actually receive Him and take the medicine, if you will, nothing ever really changes. And so when John says, for we have all received, let's remember that that word received means to procure, if you will, for oneself, to take literally up and carry with us, is the meaning of the word. It, it's, it's not just like to receive as far as maybe to grasp intellectually or something. It, it's literally like I'm grabbing hold of something, I'm drawing it to myself, and I'm going to carry it with me everywhere I go. And I'm not, it's never going to leave my sight. It's always going to be my constant companion. 
That's what he means by receiving. And what John is saying is, have we received, are we receiving, first of all, from his fullness? That's a great word. That means his abundant, unending supply. In other words, what John is saying is because Jesus is the word, because he is who he is, you never have to worry about his supply running out. And you never have to worry about as a Christian, I wonder if that Christian got to Jesus before I did. (laughs) Maybe Jesus dispensed his last little bit of help for that guy and doesn't have anything left for me. See, the great thing about God is we never have to worry about that. His supply is unending. That's why Paul could say, my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory, not out of his riches. See, that's the key difference. If, if we're giving something out of something, then that means there's an end to it. That's why Paul doesn't use the word out of. Because if God gave out of, that means that there's a limit. No, it's according to. God can give and give and give and give and never have anything diminished. He's got an unending supply. So think about that even in your own life. Whatever you need, God has an unending supply of everything that you need. And that's what he goes on to say when he uses the words gracious gift after another. Grace upon grace, some translations say, here's what John means. Whatever we do need, it's there in abundance. And it's not like God is this giver that like, well, I'll I'll give you a little bit just to get by. No. The Bible says, man, God will pile it on if you want it. It is an abundant, generous gift of grace, one after another. A benefit after another. And here's another thing that John's saying. Every day I get up, I can, if I'm willing to receive it, I can get a whole new supply of grace every day. It's like John is using the idea of the manna in the Old Testament. When they got up every day, remember, God said, you can't take manna for the next day. But what I will do is I will give you everything you need to get by that day. So every day they woke up, they went out, they got the manna they needed for that day. And John is saying, do you realize that every day, if you're willing to receive it, God will give you all the grace that you need for that day. Every day. And no matter what you and I face, no matter what it is, it will be there for us. And it comes out of His fullness. So as we've said before, and it's taught in other places in the Word, if If I have a situation where I need, on a scale of 1 to 10, I need a 7 of something from God. What John's basically saying is, God will give you an 8. He'll give you more than you need for that situation. There's a verse to contemplate. There's a verse to memorize. For we have all received from His fullness one gracious gift after another. One undeserved benefit and blessing after another. Boy, talk about counting our blessings. Talk about living with gratitude and thankfulness. John is saying, do we realize 
just the undeserved benefits and blessings we get from God every day? It's just amazing, John says. Then he says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. Why is he bringing this up now? How does this fit? I think it fits this way. He's not saying that the law that came through Moses wasn't part of God's grace either. It actually was. See, actually giving the law through Moses was a gift of God's grace. It was an example of God's graciousness too. But it, it was it always going to be inferior to the grace that came through Jesus. He's not saying law, Old Testament, bad, you know, Jesus, New Testament, good. Don't, don't go there. Because here's why the law was good and an example of God's grace. Let's, let's remember why God gave the law through Moses. He gave the law through Moses so that man would realize, wow, that's the standard. And that standard will never change. And God will never lower that standard. And God gave the law through Moses so that I would be convicted. So that I would be condemned. So that I would go, I got nothing. I need you, God, and what you supply. Because I can never live up to that standard on my own. And that was grace that did that. Because apart from the law, man would think, I can do that. In fact, don't we realize that man has done that throughout history? Hasn't man, even though God gave the law, he's done two things. He's either still going, well, I can still do that. I can measure up on my own. I can somehow attain that standard and I can work for my salvation and I can work for heaven and I can work to get to God. And so he stubbornly, even though the standard is so high, he still in his pride thinks I can do it apart from God. And then secondly, what else has happened through history is people will go, I can't, I can't measure up to that standard, so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to change the standard and lower it. Which is pretty much what happens today. That's why people reject this. That's why they won't come to a church most of the time that teaches the truth, because it's too convicting, you know, all that. Well, okay, but you understand when God does that, that's actually a gracious thing because it reminds us how much we need God and need to rely on God and depend upon God because God will never change His standard. God will never lower His standard just because we can't reach it. God says, I'm holy, you be holy. And we go, really? And the only way we can be holy is through the Holy Spirit's help. And that's why we've got to live every day in absolute dependence uh, upon the Holy Spirit. Because that's the only way we can live up to the law's standards. But here's what God did in the coming of Jesus Christ. The standard didn't get lowered. In fact, you read the Sermon on the Mount. There's times where Jesus actually almost, you know, said, here was God's intent of that. It wasn't just don't do that. It's don't even do that. So Jesus, when the coming of Jesus, it wasn't like people think, oh, we're living in the age of grace, it's so different now. No, when Jesus came, he never lowered the standard of God. But in the coming of Jesus Christ, what he did do was he brought the enablement that we would need to be able to live up to that standard. See, that's the difference, that is the difference between the Old Testament and the New. 
The Old Testament was all about pointing out to man the coming of Christ and when he would come because they knew, I can't do this on my own. I can never live up to that. But when Jesus came, he not only provided the sacrifice that would bridge that gap between us and God through our sin, but then gave us the ability to be able to live up to the standard that God's always had. And so that's what John's pointing out. That was one gracious gift right after another that came through Jesus Christ. One final verse tonight. No one has ever seen God. The only one himself, God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father has made God known. Now again, some come to verse 18 of John and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. People have seen God. I mean, let's even go back to the Old Testament before Jesus. Didn't Moses see God? The word see here is not the concept of like Moses just getting a glimpse of God. This is about seeing God again in all of his fullness and coming to an understanding of God just through physical sight. That's the idea. Remember, even Moses, when he saw God, he saw, again, a glimpse of God. And what's the Bible say? He saw God's what? Backside. That's all he saw. Because there's no way without, you know, glorified bodies that anybody's going to be able to see the fullness of God's glory and live. And then you have the truth in the Bible that God lives in inexpressible light. So how can man really see God? And what John is simply then pointing out to us is, look, we could never really come to know God if God had not revealed himself through Jesus Christ the way that he did. That's what John's trying to say. For instance, it's just like in our spectrum. There, there is light within our spectrum that our eye can't pick up, even though it's there. You see. It needs magnification. It's like, oh, okay, wow, there, there's, there's, a, there's light there, but I, I normally can't see that. John is simply saying, just because someone physically, with their physical eye, may behold God, just like they did when Jesus Christ, God walked the earth, doesn't mean they're going to come to faith in Him and come to understand Him. Because coming to truly know God has to come through faith. It has to come through our spiritual eyesight, not through our physical eyes. And that's what John means by no man has seen God. We can't come to an understanding of God just by looking physically at Him. But here's how we do it. We do it because the only one who is God, who's in closest fellowship with the Father, has made him known. And the point that John is making is this. No one, no human being ever can claim or say that they are coming to know God in a better, deeper way apart from Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying. That's significant. Because down through history, and even today, you have people touting and preaching and teaching that they are coming to a deeper understanding of God, a deeper level of God in their life, and yet Jesus Christ isn't even in the picture. And John is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. No one can truly know God until they are willing to know Him through 
Jesus, the Word of God. Because he says Jesus is in closest fellowship to God the Father and God the Spirit. And the word literally means he's in the fold of his arm. Think of it as as this part of your arm. And when you close it, how it's so close right there, that's the terminology that John is using here. That Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are that close. And when he says Jesus made him known, instead of Jesus being in the fold of God, he's now then saying Jesus unfolded God and explains God to us in a way that we would never be able to know God other than through the way Jesus did it. Jesus is the explanation for God. Jesus unfolds for us God. And so, apart from Jesus, we will never truly know God. And that's the wonder that John wants to leave us with. Here's the challenge I want to leave us with. Jesus, uh, John says that Jesus was such a great witness, was, had such a great way of explaining and expounding God to us and unfolding who God is because Jesus was in the closest possible fellowship with God. And that to me is a challenge also to all of us as Christians that if we want to be a better witness, if we want to be able to explain God in a more clear way to others, if we want to be able to unfold God and who He is to others, we have to be in fellowship with God. It is out of not just a relationship with God that we're going to have that, It's through our ongoing fellowship with God. Literally being in the fold. Close fellowship. Intimacy. Which is what God calls us to. That's why God saved us. Not just to forgive us of our sins and send us on our way to heaven. But to live in as close a possible fellowship with Him. So that obviously we could be filled up and be so full of all that God wants to give us if we're willing to receive it, one generous benefit and blessing after another, but so then we are in a position to be able to explain and expound and witness and testify about God to others. That comes, just as it did here in this truth, through the fellowship within the Godhead. And I think John is saying to us, It's going to come through our fellowship as well. So let us strive to be in fellowship with God. To spend time with Him every day. To be in His presence. And to be as close to Him as possible. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your inspiring John the Apostle to write these profound words. Lord, these words give us wonder upon wonder about Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That the Word was full of grace and truth. That the Word of God gives us every day one blessing and benefit after another. Undeserved. Grace upon grace. Every day, God, we can wake up with a whole abundant supply of Your grace. And every day, whatever grace we need, whatever help we need throughout the day, 
You have an abundant supply waiting for us if we'll just receive it. God, may we be encouraged and comforted, but also challenged by this passage of Scripture tonight. And if nothing else, Lord, may this passage of Scripture just drive us to You. Lord, it it might encourage us to just come into Your presence even more. To just be with You. To be in fellowship with You. To spend time with the God of the universe who loves us so much. Just like John testified tonight. God, go with us throughout the rest of this week. Maybe give us opportunities to explain and witness about Jesus to others. And God will give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you on Sunday. God bless you. Have a great week.